I want you to do something for me. I want you to pull out the program that you got when you came in this morning. And just at the very top of the page there, under message notes, I want you to write one, two, three. Very, very small. This is not going to take up a lot of room. But just one, two, three at the top of that page. And I want you to very quickly, just whatever comes into your mind, list the three biggest wins of your life. The greatest successes personally that you've ever known, ever experienced or had, just write them down. You don't have to rank them and like, oh, I don't know, is it number two or number three? Just write them. Just write them. One, two, three, the greatest wins of your life. It may be something that happened on an athletic court or a field way, way, way back when. Hopefully that's not the last win you've ever had. It may be, guys, you may be like me, and for you, the biggest win of your life was when you convinced your wife to suspend all rational thought and discernment, and she said, yes, she would marry you. That may be the biggest win you've ever had, or one of the biggest three wins you've ever had. Whatever it may be, I want you to write those things down. For me, I've got a number of them. Obviously, marrying Julie, top of the list. You know, so far, we've, we've parented and kind of are beginning to usher Emily and Joseph out into the real world, and so far, so good. They're at least, so far, relatively contributing members of society. That's kind of a win. Uh, getting to Pastor Lake Hills Church, definitely top three. To have a front row seat for the life change, for the salvation, to see marriages saved and salvaged over the last 19 years, to see children born into homes where their parents are raising them up to love God and to love his house and to love his ways. That, that's been a massive, massive series of wins that God has, in his grace, allowed me to, to be there and, and to see and to experience. It's been unbelievable. I remember one that's maybe on a different plane in particular from when I was playing basketball in high school. Our senior year, we open the season every single year against our crosstown rivals, the Memorial Mustangs. And it was an immutable loss since time immemorial that we started the year with a loss. Every single year, Memorial would come into our house or we'd go to their gym and they would beat us like we stole something. I mean, just like a rented mule, they beat us every single year. But my senior year it was the second season under our new coach, he had completely transformed our team, our culture, the way we practiced, the way we competed, everything. And in that first game of the year, I remember vividly beating Memorial on their home court to open the season for my senior year. It was an unbelievable night. And I remember a lot from that night. I actually remember I had the first basket of the game on a baseline turnaround jumper coming off of a pick. But what I remember the most about that night, if you were to stop me maybe a month from now or, or six months from now and say, hey, Mac, remember that game against Memorial you talked about in the sermon that day? The thing that I would remember first and most is that dog pile celebrating the victory of my teammates and me at midcourt on their home court as all 12 of us came together, the 12 guys that had run lap after lap, line after line, conditioning, getting ready for that season. The 12 of us who had been together since preseason and been just, I mean, just absolutely pushed and challenged by our coach to create a new culture and to not settle for losing anymore. It was an unbelievable experience to share that with those guys. Now, I don't know what you've written on your notes page. I, obviously, I, I can't know 
each of your three greatest victories in your life, but I do know something about the three greatest victories in your life. The biggest wins we ever celebrate are always made sweeter and richer by the people we share them with. Whatever wins and successes we have in this life, there's something about being able to share that with the people around us who mean the most, who, who matter the most, who, who maybe have walked with us through the process that got us to those wins. And the flip side of that phenomenon is also true. If you were to list the biggest hurts or heartaches, the greatest losses of your life, I know for a fact that those would have been eased somewhat. They would have been made more bearable by those people who chose to stick around when things were not so good. Those real friends. The Bible says there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And, and those friends who say, hey, when you celebrate, I'm going to celebrate. But when you grieve, I'm not going anywhere. I'll, I'll be right there with you. And in each of those situations, it's the people around us that make the difference between just kind of having a win or enduring a loss and actually having something that lasts beyond the moment. The reason for this phenomenon is really very simple. The reason for this phenomenon is the power of tribe. The power of a tribe, because there's something inside of us that, that God instilled in us. He kind of hardwired it into our makeup when he created us in his image. And that something is only satisfied in the context of belonging, of connecting and collaborating and cooperating with a group of people that absolutely feeds our souls like nothing else on the planet. Now, there are a lot of things that we could discuss and debate that vary from person to person and life to life, situation to situation, and, and, and there definitely are variations on those themes. But there is one absolute immutable law that is universally relevant for every single one of us. We need to belong. We, we have a deep longing that God's placed within us to belong to a tribe, to know and to be known, to love and to be loved at a deep and soul level. Now, I know that there are tribes that are united maybe across the internet or, or that transcend place. But for our purposes, I want to give you kind of a working definition that we're going to be unpacking over the next few weeks for the word tribe, for this, this concept that is a tribe in general. A tribe is just a group of people that is united by place and purpose. A tribe is a group of people that is united by place and by purpose. Now, like I said, I know that you, you may have a tribe of people. You know, there, there are a lot of Dallas Cowboys fans around the world. It is the number one sports brand in the universe. This is not that moment. And for the record, I, I was raised a Cowboys fan. I grew up in Houston during the Love You Blue era of the Houston Oilers. Some of you don't even know what an Oiler is. You're too young. But I grew up in Love You Blue era, but my dad 
since I had been born in Dallas, my dad raised me a Dallas Cowboys fan. And ever since a, a certain transition date in the history of the Dallas Cowboys, early 90s-ish, I have been trying not to care. I, I try. I really do. And yet, like Al Pacino in The Godfather 3, they keep pulling me back in. <laughs> and so when Tony Romo goes down with a broken bone in his back in the first preseason game of the year, or not the first preseason game, but the first series in that game, there's, there's a little piece of me that just dies inside. And I'm not proud of that. I'm working through it. I'm seeing a counselor. But that's where I am. But when we talk about a tribe over the next few weeks, we're talking about something that transcends mere affinity. We're talking about something that goes beyond just similar tastes and likes or dislikes. We're talking about something that goes to the very core of who we are. And the fact of the matter is that when we talk about tribe in this sense, you and I live in a tribally challenging environment. We live in a world that is really, really tough on that tribal need within us. Think about why tribes have been forming since as long as there have been people. You know, originally it was probably around survival kind of hunting and gathering together and, and moving where the herds moved so that you could actually eat and survive. And by the grace of God, most of us have kind of moved beyond that. But we've still got this innate, inherent drive within us. And at a time when there's so much technology, there's so many channels for connectivity, the great irony of our culture and our world is that with all of this technology and these channels for connectivity, we are perhaps the most isolated, segregated, and separated from one another that we have ever been in the history of ever. There's just something about really connecting that the world you and I inhabit makes really, really tough. Sebastian Younger is a best-selling author and an award-winning documentary director and is a fascinating cat. He's the author of the book that became the movie The Perfect Storm. Remember where George Clooney was a uh, swordfish fisherman. And <laughs> Sebastian Younger, about four or five months ago, released his latest book, which I picked up because I've read several of his things over the years, and, and he's always kind of been a fascinating guy. He's done some TED Talks that I thought were really, really provocative and, and interesting. And his new book is called Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging. And, and as I read the pages of Tribe, you, you find out that Sebastian Younger, he's not, a, he's not a man of faith. He's an atheist. But he writes about this longing, this yearning that all of us have to connect and to be connected to each other, this need that we have and this need that society and culture at large has for us to connect on a granular and organic level. And in this book, Tribe, which again, he, he's not approaching this from a Christian or a biblical perspective. He's approaching it from a more humanistic, anthropological perspective. 
And this is what Sebastian Younger, part of what he writes in the book Tribe, he says that modern society, despite its nearly miraculous advances in medicine, science, and technology, is afflicted with some of the highest rates of depression, schizophrenia, poor health, anxiety, and chronic loneliness in human history. I would suggest to you that Younger is spot on in his diagnosis of where we are as a culture, of where we are as a people. But I would also suggest to you that this diagnosis is actually a phenomenal opportunity. Specifically, for those of us who consider ourselves a part of the tribe of faith, the, the church, if you will, this may be our greatest strategic advantage because we have an opportunity to offer the antidote to this disease. Actually, I want to be even more specific. I, I, don't, I don't think we just have the antidote. I think if you read the pages of Scripture from Genesis to maps all the way through, God would tell you and me this morning, we are the solution. We are the antidote to chronic loneliness. We are the antidote by virtue of the fact that we are the community of faith. We are the tribe of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, that's what the entire book of Acts is devoted to. It's devoted to illustrating and recording the very foundations of this fledgling movement known as the church. Now, church is a loaded term. Church is a loaded term, not by virtue of what's just in the Bible, but by virtue of all of our experiences. We've all got a different concept or idea of what church is or ought to be or has been, when in reality, we have a roadmap. We, we have a, a template that the Bible has given to us of what it's supposed to be, of what it can be. Now, the book of Acts is interesting because the book of Acts records this fledgling movement Warts and all. I always laugh. That's one of the great things about Scripture. Scripture tells us what is. Scripture tells us the truth unvarnished. And this is especially true where the church is concerned. I've heard people say this from time to time. Well, you know, I, I just haven't found the right church because I, I want a New Testament church. Now, wouldn't most of us go, boy, that is so true. That, ju that just sounds so spiritually mature. But be careful when you hear somebody say, I want a New Testament church. Because the church in Corinth was a New Testament church. It's, it's part of what the Bible is written to, First and Second Corinthians. It was Paul's letters to the church at Corinth. But the church at Corinth had so mingled and mixed the message of Christ with the methods of this world, that the church in Corinth, I don't mean to shock anybody, but they actually had temple prostitutes as part of their worship services. Mm, I'm drawing the line. I'm sorry. Call me legalistic. I don't mean to be a prude. But be careful when you say, I want a New Testament church. 
If you read the book of 1 and 2 Corinthians closely, Paul, the apostle, this, this spiritual father to the church at Corinth, he's pretty much telling them they're grounded. I mean, it's, it's an act of love, but he's, he's calling them up and beyond what they're used to. But in the book of Acts, we see this fledgling movement kind of beginning to, to it's almost like if you've seen on the Discovery Channel when, when birds are hatched and, and they come out of the shell and you see that, that first little beak or, or claw kind of ping, 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 and they pop out. That, that's what's happening in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, there, there's this incredible moment that's recorded in the second chapter of Acts. Now, Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. The New Testament follows the Old Testament, and there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at the very beginning of the New. But Acts, Acts records the history of the beginnings of the church. After Jesus' earthly ministry, we know, of course, that Jesus was here on the earth for about 33 years or so, born in Bethlehem, ministered and served throughout the, the region of what is now Palestine, Galilee, Jerusalem, and, and beyond. And then he was crucified on a Roman cross. That's beyond historical debate. That's a given. And then the essence of our faith is that he rose again from the dead. He got up out of the ground period. And in so doing, he had conquered death and subdued sin so that anyone who would believe in him would be forgiven of their sins and be entered into a relationship with God that we were created for in the first place, but that our sin had messed up. And after his resurrection, he was here on earth for another 40 days. He appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses before returning to heaven. But in Acts chapter 2, we see the church, kind of its charter service, if you will. Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter, that, that outspoken former fisherman, standing up in the city of Jerusalem and declaring the purposes and the power of the church. And, and it's an amazing, amazing moment, this Peter who had walked on the water with Jesus. This Peter who had just a few weeks before denied that Jesus was even part of his life. And the Bible says that when, when Peter denied Jesus, his, his past as a fisherman kind of came out of him. He, you know how old habits are hard to break sometimes? The Bible says that Peter denied Jesus with an oath. That means that he cursed. It's what fishermen do, right? So come on, you can laugh at that. It's okay. Sometimes you miss the fish. It's not okay to curse, but and y'all, y'all got to lighten up. I'm just trying to keep it real with you. I'm telling you. So Peter curses, denies that he even knows Jesus, and then weeks later is standing up in front of thousands proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And it's within this proclamation that, G, that Peter describes this antidote, that, that he describes what this newfound tribe is really all about. Check this out in Acts chapter number two. Peter's speaking there in Jerusalem and he says, let everyone, say everyone, let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Now, 
A couple things going on there that I want to make sure we, we don't miss. When he says God has made this Jesus to be Lord and Messiah, it doesn't mean that God created Jesus. Jesus is God. He is part of the Godhead, God the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. So God didn't make Jesus, but he did appoint Jesus to be both Lord and Messiah, the promised one. So that, that, that's first of all, that we, I want to make sure that that's, that that's clear. Second of all, I want you to notice what Peter says here in this opening sermon. He says, I want to make sure that you understand this Jesus whom you crucified. That, that's kind of a, you know, as somebody who speaks on a regular basis, I can tell you the first law of communication is what? Consider your audience. Think about how you're going to connect, how this message is going to resonate with them. To, to look your audience in the eye and say, by the way, you crucified Jesus. It's not a real endearing kind of thing. Not, a, not a, like a real icebreaker introduction, if you will. But it's the truth. It's not only the truth for, for Peter's audience. It's the truth for us. It's the truth for me. Because the Bible says that when Jesus went to the cross, he became my sin. He became your sin. So my sin, my, my inherent bent towards self, my inherent bent towards selfishness or anger or greed or love, whatever you want to, whatever sin you want to pull out of the sin bucket, that's what put Jesus on the cross. Yours and mine. And that's, that's the truth of the matter. That's the reality of it. And, and, and it's that reality that, that Peter's trying to make sure everybody who is watching the beginnings of this tribe and, and trying to understand what's going on, he, he wants to make sure that you understand the heart of the matter is the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is what Jesus did on the cross for every single one of us. And Peter's not only saying this for those who are watching from the outside looking in, but for those who are the already convinced. And the message is really an incredibly beautiful and powerful message for the tribe. And for those who might one day be a part of the tribe. And it's this. We're all in this together. We're all in this together. The foot, um, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter who your daddy was or wasn't. It doesn't matter how much money you do or do not have, where you live or do not live, what you drive or do not drive, how new or how old your Schwinn banana seat bicycle is. We're all in this together because we all need grace. We all need forgiveness. We all need sin. We all mess up. And so Peter's trying to establish that this fledgling tribe of faith in Jesus is the most inclusive, the most egalitarian group that has ever existed on the planet the only prerequisite to being a part of this tribe is to admit that you need help, is to admit 
that you can't earn God's favor. It's to admit that you need forgiveness and grace. Peter goes on. Verse 37, the Bible says that Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? If it's true that we crucified him, what do we do about this? And Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, in Jerusalem, most of his audience was Jewish. They were born into a very specific tribe. They were born into the tribe of Abraham. And a lot of them, I think you could maybe even intelligently make the argument that most of them took a great deal of pride, personally and spiritually, in being a part of that tribe. Like, well, I mean, I don't need to say this. I don't mean to brag, but God did choose us. So I guess there you go. Do with that what you will. But Peter said, each of you, each of you must repent. Individually. Doesn't matter if your mom taught Sunday school or your dad dragged you to church every day of your young life. You have to choose what to do with the grace of God. You have to choose to receive or reject this grace. Each of you. It's not even about whether or not you go to church. It's not even about whether you throw some pocket change in the offering bucket. It's about what you do with Christ. And then after that, this grace drives the tribe. Grace drives the tribe. Because when we realize how desperately we need the grace of God, when we realize how desperately we need his forgiveness and we receive it, we personally respond and repent, And then that grace just starts to radiate out of us. That grace starts to become real in the way we treat each other. That grace starts to become real in the way we orient and schedule our lives. That grace drives everything that we do collectively as the tribe of faith. Grace drives everything. So then it's not guilt. It's not an obligation. Julie and I have been married for 25 years. You might have heard. And I actually, after 25 years, enjoy surprising her with little stupid acts of kindness. Now, they're stupid to me. For example, three days ago, Julie has been immersed. She's been working really, really hard with Pastor Jack Bailey in our children's ministry and getting ready for this series strong enough that she's doing right now over there. And so she was, she was in a meeting for a considerably longer period of time than she had planned on or communicated to me. And, and I decided, you know what? She's going to come home. We're going to eat. Oh, we're, we're going to eat. I'm going to empty the dishwasher for her. 
Now listen, listen, that's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. I don't need cards of accommodation. Don't, I'm not telling you that for that reason. But here's what's a big deal. I knew that when she got home, she was not going to want to have to face a full dishwasher. And after 25 years of loving this woman, of kissing her goodnight, and enjoying life together, I thought that's a little thing that I can do for her. And I hate emptying the dishwasher. I mean, I hate it. And I know you're saying, well, we tell our children not to say hate. Your children should be in the children's ministry right now. <laughs> I'm telling you, I hate it. <laughs> Kidding, but not. But, <clears throat> but because I was doing it for Julie in that little tribe of two, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed emptying the stupid, <laughs> demonic dishwater, dishwasher. I enjoyed it. Because of what she does for me. Of, of all the things that I know I don't know about she does for me. You see, grace drives things differently than fear or guilt. And when Peter introduces the concept of the cross here at the day of Pentecost, he's saying, this is the reality. But so is grace. So is what it drives, what it fuels, what it compels, what it motivates, what it inspires. Grace is what drives the church. To be the church, to do what God's called us to do. Grace drives the tribe. Peter goes on in verse 39. He says, this promise is to you, it's to your children, and to those who are far away. People who have not even heard about the grace of God yet. This is for them as well. All who have been called by the Lord our God. Verse 41. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day. About 3,000 in all. Somebody help Peter preach. I mean, 3,000 people. You want to talk about an altar call? I mean, that's a good night for Billy Graham. 3,000 people responded and said, I'm in. Personally repented a 180 from where they had been going. Whoa. 3,000. And this is our great strategic advantage because grace guarantees the tribe's survival. Grace guarantees the survival and the thriving of the tribe of faith. When you understand what God did for you, you want to see him do it for somebody else. It's too good to keep in. It's too good to keep to yourself. All of a sudden, your personal comfort becomes secondary. It, it, it takes a, a back seat because you know people who right now don't yet know how extravagantly God loves them. And so, so that, that begins to change the way you look at church. 
That begins to change the way you look at your week. That begins to change the way you look at family. That begins to change the way you look at dating. That begins to change everything because grace guarantees the survival of the tribe. And what Peter's talking about here only echoes what Jesus had already said. Remember, Peter had, a, had his name legally changed, legally, spiritually. There, there was that incredible moment when Jesus asked his disciples one day, who do, who do people say that I am? And the disciples said, well, some people say you're Isaiah or Jeremiah back from the dead, maybe John the Baptist. It's crazy. But then Jesus brought it to a laser-fine point, and he said, well, who do you say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? And it was Peter. It was Peter one more time. <clears throat> At the time, he was known as Simon. And, and Peter said, well, you're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah, the promised one, period. Or something like that in the original Hebrew. But look at how Jesus responded to Peter's confession. And this is from the message, which is an accurate paraphrase of the original language. Jesus came back and he said, God bless you, Simon, son of Jonah. That's not Jonah and the whale. It's a different Jonah. He says, you didn't get that answer out of books or from teachers. But my father in heaven, God himself, let you in on this secret of who I really am. And now I'm going to tell you who you are, who you really are. You are Peter, a rock. And this is the rock on which I will put together my church, a church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. Of all the tribes you can belong to, and some, some are great, cowboy fans. Of all the tribes you can belong to, a team, a dance troupe, a fraternity in college, a sorority, of all of the tribes that you can belong to, there's only one. There's only one that is guaranteed to thrive and survive in this world guaranteed by the only one who has the authority to make that guarantee. The son of the living God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords says his church will prevail against the gates of hell, against whatever Satan and the world throws at the church. This tribe will thrive. This tribe will survive. This tribe will be here for all eternity. And it's grace that guarantees it. It's grace. Now, <clears throat> I've been, I've been, I've had the blessing of doing ministry for a while now. I'm not necessarily old, but I'm certainly not young anymore. And I've noticed over the years that there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what it means to belong to this tribe. And I think that, that Peter's words here, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, can be incredibly clarifying. And I would suggest to you really simplifying. 
And I want to just, just briefly mention to you three signs that, that, that you belong to this tribe. Three signs that we belong. Number one is belief. It's belief that you personally or I personally believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, died on the cross for our sin, my sin, and rose again from the dead so that whoever believes in him would never die but would have eternal life through the forgiveness of sins. It's belief. And that we then live our lives in response to that. It's not just believing that there is a God. That, that bar is too low. It's believing that Jesus is who he said he is. The second sign that you belong is the sign of baptism. It's, it's being baptized as a statement of faith. Now, if you were baptized as an infant or as a child, awesome. Phenomenal statement of faith by your parents. Your, your parents made that choice for you. But biblically, baptism follows belief. It, it is a statement of faith. So if you were baptized before you believed, then, then that's a different thing than what the Bible talks about in baptism. So belief and baptism. But the third sign that you belong to the tribe of faith is belonging. It's belonging. And now some of you are thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. A sign that I belong is that I belong? First of all, thank you for paying attention. Second of all, yeah, because belonging is a choice you make. It's a choice you make to affiliate, to connect with a particular church. It's not kind of hanging out out in the ether. Well, I'm just a part of the church. Woo, woo. But it is belonging. It's connecting. What does it say in Acts chapter 2? 3,000 were added to their number that day in Jerusalem. They weren't added to their number in Corinth or in Galatia or Ephesus or Lystra. They, they were added to the number in Jerusalem. That was a specific body of Christ, a specific church where they chose to belong because that was where they did life. Now, I don't know where you are on your spiritual journey, but I do know this. There's another step to take. Wherever you are right now, there is another step to take on that journey. The program that I asked you to pull out and you, you wrote down the three biggest wins of your life earlier, I want you to take that out again real quick. Looks like this on the front. But on the back, at the very bottom, I want to invite you, we as a church invite every single one of you to take the next step. To take the next step as a part of the tribe, whatever that looks like for you. For some of you, you've been coming to church here for, for a few weeks or months or years or decades, and it's time. It's time for you to belong and not just show up. You indicate there, I'm interested in next steps or life groups or Bible study. There's a place for you to belong, but you have to take your place. You have to take that step. 
Now, it's one thing for me to, to talk about it and, and, and prepare and pray for a, a sermon and a message and, and to use the power of Scripture and what God says biblically. And I think that I think that, that really does matter, and I think God uses that. And I also know that stories are incredibly powerful. And just very, very briefly, I want to share with you the story of a member of our tribe. And it's not a coincidence, it's not just happenstance that this particular member is a high school student. It's a student who has chosen to belong in every sense of the word. Take a look at Jordan's story. My name is Jordan Kilgore. I am 17 years old. I'm a senior at Dripping Springs. I have a brother that goes to A&M and a sister that goes to a school in Arkansas. So at home it's just me and my mom now. It's kind of weird. <laughs> but um, I'm a cheerleader at Dripping Springs, which is what takes up a lot of my time and a lot of fun. About a year ago, um, at the Back to School Blessing, um, a cheerleader named Maddie Rayleigh um, asked me if I would do a performance up on stage just as a cheerleader in my uniform. So I said I'd been a couple times, so I was like, of course. It was a little bit like I um, had a role and then I got to be a part and I got to serve the church more than just coming to sit and listen, that I actually got to be a part of it and do something for the church. Even though I only came just to be in my uniform and to help out a friend that asked me to do something, it finally clicked that this is like where I should be a part of and that this is what I should be doing. After the back to school blessing this year, um, I had some of the girls that I had invited to be in their uniform, just like I did a year ago, um, come up to me and say, this is so cool, we love your church, um, we wanna come back next Sunday. And it's cool to me to just imagine what God will do through their lives, because I can see what God had done through my life from my first back to school blessing to now and how I've gotten involved in the church. I felt like I was a part of the church on Sunday mornings, but little did I know until I came to Crash Wednesday that that is like, friends that are my age and that are going through the same things that are going through high school with me and that made me feel even more a part of Lake Hills that I can relate to these kids and not just come on Sunday but also have the support of Wednesday nights. On Wednesday nights I am an eighth grade girls leader so we get to get here a little bit early and have I have small group with my eighth grade girls and then we attend crash and then after that I have small group with my leader with senior girls so I get to mentor and then I get to listen to Dan preach and then I also get to be mentored so it's really cool to go through all of those in just one night um, but yeah I get to help eighth grade girls because that's where I've been and then I have a college leader that gets to help me because that's where they have been. On Sundays I serve in the nursery and I got to mentor eighth graders at Riot and then I also got to do VBS as a game leader this summer for a K through fifth. So I really get to do from infants to all the way up to eighth graders which is really cool. If I hadn't gone to Lake Hills I um, really don't know where I'd be in high school or where I would be in my life in Christ. I could have taken a completely wrong road if I had continued not to get involved in church and continue not to have a family and have people that would keep me accountable. But I can truly say that like, it has completely changed my life to have a family that cares for me and wants me to make the right decisions and that I can um, grow my relationship with Christ and not go down that wrong path. Nineteen years ago, 
on this Sunday, 19 years worth of Sundays ago, that 15 people <clears throat> gathered in the living room of the duplex that Julie and I were renting when we moved to Austin and said, we kind of put our hands in the middle and said, we are Lake Hills Church. Jordan's story. Jordan. is the fulfillment and the answer to all of those prayers when God called us to be this tribe. Jordan and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, after 19 years, thousands of lives like hers are what this is all about. It's about people who choose to believe, people who choose to be baptized, and, and people who choose to belong to the tribe of faith, to the tribe of grace. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that tribe, I mean personally and definitively responded to the grace of God, then we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now, just to pray right where you're sitting. Just silently talk to God and just say, God, I need you. Jesus, I need your grace. And so I confess my sin. I claim your forgiveness. And Jesus, in exchange for your life, I give you mine. And I will follow you from this moment forward forever. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name with everything I've got. If you would, I want to just ask you to remain with your heads bowed and your eyes closed for a moment because it's a sacred moment. And if that was your prayer for the first time in your life, then I want to make sure that you understand we would love for you to be a part of our tribe. And the best way to start that ball rolling is, is on that connect card that's in the program. If you'll just, before you leave today, fill out that card. And about halfway down, not quite halfway, there's a, there's a box there that says, I committed my life to Christ this week. And that'll begin a, a conversation, a tribal conversation, if you will so that we can just come alongside and help you in this new relationship. You can help us. We need you. We got work to do. After you've filled it out, you can just tear it off at the perforation. And before you leave today, just, just take a brief moment and hand it to one of our ushers and just say, hey, today was my day. 
also for everybody who needs to take next steps. That's the same card you'll also you could hand to an usher or you could hand to somebody at the blue tent on your way out. Whatever that next step for you looks like, we want to help. Use that card for that. Make sure that we can contact you this week, and we will. But for those of you who just prayed to step into that relationship with Christ, you need to understand this is a once and for all moment. It's a once and for all moment because once God responds to your response, it's done. You never have to pray that prayer again. You never have to pass a certain test or attend church a certain number of times. It's all grace. It's all grace. And so we want to invite you to, to mark this moment in your life as our heads are bowed and, and everybody's eyes are closed. If you would just, if that was your prayer, would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand up high over your head for yourself, for yourself as well, just to mark this moment, but also to mark this moment in the life of this church. This moment's why we exist. It's what we're all about. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to put your hands down. But before I do, I want to just, if you will, we are seconds away from, from ending our service and, and going out to be the church we're supposed to be. And I want to just ask you, as we do that, if you would, not get up and leave or try to race people to the parking lot. To not be a distraction in any way from what God is doing in this moment, but to celebrate as a tribe together what God's done in these lives. So as you folks put your hands down, the rest of this tribe will put our hands together to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.